following message is by Pastor Steve Lee of Emmanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emmanuel Community Church can be found online at www.emmanuelcommunity.org. All right, well, today we're looking at Jeremiah chapter 32. Uh, And basically, this passage is about the prophet Jeremiah being faced with an investment opportunity to basically buy a plot of land right outside of Jerusalem. And at the time, that deal looks horrible from a pure real estate transaction. It's a dog. And God asks him basically to buy this land as a claim on the kind of future that Jeremiah believes is awaiting Israel for the hope of a God-centered life that believes that God has good intended for his people. And so we're going to look at that land deal that went down and also Jeremiah's prayer that follows after he purchases this land uh, and explore that in what it has to teach us about having hope in God. But before we get there, we're going to look at a little transaction that happened between Jeremiah and this King Zedekiah in chapter 32. And so I'm going to revisit some of the themes that I've been building the past few weeks on this idea of God's discipline and his love. Uh, Last week I pointed out how King Nebuchadnezzar conquered Jerusalem and he ended up taking many of the conquered Jews and deporting them to his own country of Babylon where they lived in exile. And one thing I mentioned in that message was that about a decade later, though, uh, there was going to be a second siege on Jerusalem. Uh, Judah would once again rebel against Babylon, and so Nebuchadnezzar had to basically come back in and beat up on the Israelites once again. And so he lays siege to Jerusalem just a little more than a decade after he conquered the city for the Uh, already. This time the punishment would be much harsher. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar is going to reduce Jerusalem to a heap of rubble. He's going to burn the city to the ground, tear down its walls. He's going to even burn God's holy temple and steal all of the precious articles that are in there. And then he's going to take many of these Jews that were remaining in Jerusalem and he's going to take them with him back to Babylon so that there will be a second exile where even more Jews are going to end up in Babylon. It's months before the city of Jerusalem falls for the second time that the events of chapter 32 that we're going to look at today takes place. In other words, the armies of Babylon are now camped around Jerusalem. They already have begun their siege, and we find the events of 32. In chapter 32, verse 1 through 5, it says this, The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord in the tenth year of Zedekiah, king of Judah, which was the eighteenth year of Nebuchadnezzar, at that time the army of the king of Babylon was besieging Jerusalem. And Jeremiah the prophet was shut up in the court of the guard that was in the palace of the king of Judah. For Zedekiah, king of Judah, had imprisoned him, saying, Why do you prophesy and say, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I am giving the city into the hand of the king of Babylon, and he shall capture it. Zedekiah, king of Judah, shall not escape out of the hand of the Chaldeans, but shall surely be given into the hand of the king of Babylon, and shall speak with him 
face to face and see him eye to eye. And he shall take Zedekiah to Babylon, and there he shall remain until I visit him, declares the Lord. Though you fight against the Chaldeans, you shall not succeed. So basically, King Zedekiah imprisons Jeremiah for treason because of the stuff that he's saying. Nonstop, Jeremiah is saying, the Babylonians are going to win, we're going to lose. And not only that, but Zedekiah, you as king, are this time also going to be taken to Babylon, where you're going to have to face King Nebuchadnezzar himself, and God is going to deal with you there. And King Zedekiah doesn't like what he hears from Jeremiah, so he throws him into prison. In fact, in 32, chapter 32, we see that he is imprisoned in the court of the king, but when you look at chapter 37, and this is the confusing part, is because the book of Jeremiah isn't chronological, okay? It's very confusing, but stuff that happens later in the book is actually historically an earlier event. So when you read Jeremiah chapter 37, what we find out is that when Jeremiah was first imprisoned, he gets thrown into a pretty horrible dungeon before he gets brought to the king's court. And the conditions there must have been really horrible because when he meets the king, Jeremiah begs him not to send him back to this dungeon. He basically says, please don't put me back there in that place because I fear if you send me back there, I'm going to die. I'm not going to survive another day in that place. Basically, what's happening is that the king is making Jeremiah do hard time beating up on this guy because he doesn't like the message that he's saying to him. And so I think he figures, after I soften up this guy a little, maybe he's going to be ready to give me the kind of prophecy that I want to hear. So he sends him for what we're told in chapter 37 is a very long time. Jeremiah, by this point, must have been beaten up pretty badly, pretty ragged, probably even starving to death. And so then the king meets with them secretly. And this is what it says in Jeremiah 37, verse 16 to 17. Jeremiah was put into a vaulted cell in a dungeon where he remained a long time. Then King Zedekiah sent for him and had him brought to the palace where he asked him privately, Is there any word from the Lord? Yes, Jeremiah replied, you will be delivered into the hand of the king of Babylon. <laughs> this guy will not budge. Jeremiah looks and goes, I got a word for you. You're still going there, you know? Doesn't matter if I just spent the last six months in this wretched place. You're still going there, whether you like it or not. So this visit with the king and Jeremiah happens after that initial encounter. And visiting Jeremiah, the king basically is saying to him, why do you got to do me like that, you know? Like, why are you doing this, Jeremiah? Why are you always forecasting doom and gloom on my kingdom? Why are you trash-talking me in public like that? And it's kind of interesting that Zedekiah is asking this question, isn't it? Because it's, it almost is absurd. It doesn't make sense. How can you ask Jeremiah why he's doing this? For the last couple decades, Jeremiah has been telling you why this is going to happen. It's because of the sins of Judah and the sins of the leadership. And it's because of this that judgment is coming on Jerusalem. And it's almost like it seems like the king is mentally challenged, doesn't it? Like he just doesn't get it. How could you not understand why this is happening after all that Jeremiah said? But I don't think it was an intelligence issue. 
I don't think it was because the king was dumb. I think it was because of the distorted view of God that he had. Basically, what the king was saying was this. Jeremiah, you're a traitor to this country. And the way I know you're a traitor is because of the stuff you're always saying. It's always negative. It's always attacking us. It's always harmful to us. And, and not just with Jeremiah, but I think it even translated to God. If God really cared about us, then he wouldn't let the Babylonians win. We would win the battle. And if God really were on our side, then we cannot lose this war. You see, the king couldn't imagine how if God really was with them, all of the stuff that Jeremiah was saying and predicting would come to pass. They couldn't envision that out of God's love, he would send them to Babylon. He couldn't envision that the suffering that they were going through was under God's hand, that they were being disciplined because God cared about them. And here's the truth is that in my years of pastoral counseling, I find this mentality pervasive, not only in Old Testament Israel, but in the church today. It's this distorted view of God's love that we have, this distorted view of love completely that makes it so difficult to speak truth into somebody's life. If you really cared about me, you wouldn't say those hurtful things to me or about me. If you were really on my side, you would support me rather than attack me like that. I said this last week. If you are a person that is saved by the blood of Jesus Christ, covered in his blood, punishment is off the table, okay? Punishment is off the table. Jesus took all of our punishment on himself. But there is clear evidence in the Bible that God still disciplines those that he loves. Not out of punishment, but because he loves us when our hearts turn away from him. He will, at times, bring that difficulty in our life to bring us back to himself. And because he does it, not only when we do something wrong, but even when everything is going well, he sometimes will bring suffering to help us to grow spiritually. But he doesn't do it out of anger or out of justice but he does it out of love. But here is the thing. For God's discipline to have its intended effect on our lives, we need the courage to take a long, hard, honest look at ourselves. This is the problem with being able to receive discipline well, is that so often we we feel like the problem is out there. The problem is with everybody else. The problem is with these circumstances that I'm faced with. And it is so hard for us to say, maybe it's me. Maybe the place that I got to look is inwardly at what's going on in my own heart. The other thing is often we're going into problem solver mode. When things are difficult in our life, we immediately jump to trying to fix the problem and get out of the situation and do anything we can to get back to that place of comfort and security. We're not in a learning posture. We're not pausing to think, why is this happening in my life? What is God trying to teach me 
through this? How does he want to grow me through this? Or the other side of it is we can go into this escape mode of trying to run away as much as we can and get back to that place of comfort and saying, I don't like this any bit and I'm not going to deal with this. And so we run and we hide. But this is what the process of confession and repentance is all about. It's the work that God must do in our hearts if we're really going to be able to receive discipline well. Jesus said in John chapter 16, verse 7 to 8, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. This is a work that God has to do in our lives, to peel away the blindness that so often exists and actually enable us to see ourselves as we really are and to have the courage to face what we see and say, Lord, I want you to do that work in my life, in my heart. I want to challenge you that for all of us, including myself, We can go through a lot of suffering and a lot of difficulty in this life and learn nothing from it. And we can beat against heaven and say, why, God, why? Why is this happening? Totally failing to understand often what God's ways are about, what he is trying to accomplish in us through that pain and through that suffering and that difficulty. Are you a person who receives discipline well? to realize that this is God's love for me, out of which he is growing my faith and working in my life. Well, I want to pivot a little and talk about now this land deal that Jeremiah was presented with. And I want to introduce it by sharing a little story with you. Um, Back in the late 90s, around 97, um, my brother, older brother, and some of you know who he is, he's uh, Pastor Dave, who pastors Harvest Community Church, which is our sister church in the Thrive Network. Uh, he was helping my parents to manage their personal investment portfolio during that time. And so managing their funds, he actually ended up purchasing about $10,000 of Apple computer stock. And he sat on it for like a couple years. And uh, those were really difficult years for Apple. You know, their, their stock value was languishing. Their market share in the personal computing world was diminishing every year. Uh, they were firing CEOs left and right. And so basically, because the stock kept going down, he was going to sell it all off. But as a loyal Apple fan, I follow Apple News meticulously. And I found out that Apple bought Next Computer. Now, Next Computer, I'm sorry I'm going into all this. If you, if you, it, you'll, you'll see the point in a little bit here. Steve Jobs, the founder of Apple, was fired by, from, by his own board and was kicked out of the company that he helped to start. And after that, he started this Next Computer company. And Next Computer created a legendary operating system. It was called the BOS. And it was legendary because it never crashed. It never crashed compared to the Windows blue window of death and Apple was crashing all the time, you know. Um, 
And there was even rumor that Jobs himself may eventually find his way into the leadership of Apple again. And when I read that news in the tech journals, I told my brother, don't sell this stock. Do not sell it. Good times are coming for Apple. Something amazing. They were going to basically use that operating system to develop their next generation operating system, which became known as OS X. Okay? And so I said, Dave, do not sell. Do not sell. And he said, okay, I'll, I'll think about it. I, I probably won't sell. And then he sold it. <laughs> he sold all of it. I called him a week later. I said, what did you do with the stock? He said, I sold it. <laughs> um, he got cold feet. He was worried about losing my parents' money. And he wasn't willing to take the risk with their, their money. And he truthfully thought the company would never be great again. I looked it up. <laughs> As of this last Thursday, that $10,000 in Apple stock is worth today $2.9 million. <laughs> I informed him of this at our, his birthday dinner yesterday. <laughs> And I kind of killed the mood of the dinner when I said that. Because my parents were there too. It was a little funny moment of beating up on him a bit. Because I've often reminded him actually of this event. Listen, it's, this is so unfair, right? Because hindsight is twenty twenty, And it's so easy for me to rip on him and say, I told you so. But this is the high-stakes game of personal financial investing, right? No one has a crystal ball. No one knows. For all we know, Apple could have headed south and ended up dying, and he would have lost 10 grand. Okay? None of us knows the future. And that was similar to what was happening with Jeremiah that day. God says, I want you to go ahead with this real estate deal. And Jeremiah looked at it and said, this is ridiculous. This is ridiculous, God. Jeremiah chapter 32, verse 6 to 8, it says this. Jeremiah said, The word of the Lord came to me. Behold, Hanamel, the son of Shalem, your uncle, will come to you and say, Buy my field that is at Anathoth, for the right of redemption by purchase is yours. Then Hanamel, my cousin, came to me in the court of the guard in accordance with the word of the Lord and said to me, Buy my field that is at Anathoth, in the land of Benjamin, for the right of possession and redemption is yours. Buy it for yourself. Then I knew that this was the word of the Lord. Now, Jeremiah's cousin, a man named Hanamel, comes to visit him in prison. And he doesn't come bringing a warm home-cooked meal or news of the family. Instead, he presses his cousin Jeremiah to buy this piece of land from him. Hanamel's request is outrageous for so many reasons. For one, Jeremiah is in the midst, uh, Jerusalem is in the midst of a siege. In fact, that field that he was trying to sell to him, it was in a place called Anathoth. That was a suburb just outside of Jerusalem. And so what historians tell us is that in that moment that he's trying to dump this piece of property, the Babylonian army was very likely camped on that farm lobbing <laughs> fiery boulders into the city, you know, whatever. 
I don't know if that's what they did, but whatever. And so basically, this guy Hanamel is saying, buy this land from me. Not only that, but Jeremiah knows the Babylonians are going to win and that Jerusalem is going to be destroyed. Not only that, but Jeremiah is in prison. He has no idea what his own fate is going to be. He doesn't know if he'll ever be released by the king or if he's going to be executed for treason. In other words, it doesn't seem like it's an ideal time for a real estate deal for Jeremiah. And here's the interesting thing, is as leverage, Hanamel, his cousin, invokes Israel's kinsman-redeemer law on land ownership and basically says, you have to buy this land from me. You're obligated to. The way it worked is like this. According to the law of Moses, if you were in financially desperate situation and you had to sell your farm, then the nearest relative of yours was required by law to buy that land from you in order to keep family property within the family, the extended family. And so basically, he says, you are my nearest relative, you have to buy my land from me. But here is the ridiculous thing about that request. Of course, Hanamel is in a difficult financial situation. Everybody in Jerusalem is in a difficult situation. People are starving to death because of the siege. They are dropping like flies. We're told in other passages in the Bible that bodies litter the streets of Jerusalem. The question is, who isn't in a difficult situation right now, Hanamel? How do you have the audacity to say, I have to sell my farm right now? In fact, in chapter 33, the very next chapter, we're told that things got so bad that they were basically dismantling everybody's houses in order to take the bricks and use them to fortress, to to buttress the walls that were being destroyed by the Babylonians under the siege. They even were dismantling the royal palaces. I think it's an understatement to say that the real estate market in Jerusalem was not doing well at that time, right? Right? And it is in this moment of national crisis that Hanamel goes to his cousin in prison and invokes Jewish law and says, you've got to buy my land from me. You have to buy my farm because I'm in a financially difficult situation right now. And as Jeremiah is hearing all this, he says, this is exactly what God told me was going to happen. And so he does the unthinkable, and he buys the farm. Verses 9 to 15 records the actual details of the transaction that happened. In verse 9, it says, And I bought the field in Anathoth from Hanamel, my cousin, and weighed out the money to him, 17 shekels of silver. I signed the deed, sealed it, got witnesses, and weighed the money on scales. Then I took the sealed deed of purchase, contained the terms and conditions and the open copy, and I gave the deed of purchase to Baruch, the son of Neriah, son of Masaiah, in the presence of Hanamel, my cousin, in the presence of the witnesses who signed the deed of purchase, and in the presence of all the Judeans who were sitting in the court of the guard. I charged Baruch in the presence of saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Take these deeds, both the sealed deed of purchase and this open deed, and put them in an earthenware vessel that they may last for a long time. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, houses and fields and vineyards shall again be bought in this land. 
All of our real estate agents must have gotten so blessed hearing those details because it probably means nothing to the rest of us. But what I find almost comical about what's recorded here is the length through which Jeremiah goes to make sure that this deal is done properly and no one contests that he bought this field. It's as if Jeremiah is saying to all the witnesses, you are all witnesses this day. I have done everything properly. Everything was above board. You now see with your own eyes, I bought this farm. And it's like everyone else is saying, it's your farm, Jeremiah. No one's going to contest this. When the Babylonian army has not occupied it anymore, you can go to that farm and do whatever you want there. Have at it. It's your farm, Jeremiah. Having just paid out the money, having signed the deed, Jeremiah sits in his prison, and he offers this interesting prayer to God. And it goes something like this in verses 16 to 17. After I had given the deed of purchase to Baruch, the son of Neriah, I prayed to the Lord, saying, Ah, Lord God, it is you who have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. Now, this is an interesting thing that Jeremiah says. Nothing is too hard for you. There is a sense of wonder and amazement in Jeremiah's tone, in his words. Also a sense of comfort and assurance. But what exactly was Jeremiah's meaning? What was he referring to when he said, nothing is too difficult for you, God? I think the answer is found in the rest of his prayer, in verses 18 to 25. Look at what Jeremiah says. You show steadfast love to thousands, but you repay the guilt of fathers to their children after them. O great and mighty God, whose name is the Lord of hosts, great in counsel and mighty in deed, whose eyes are open to all the ways of the children of man, rewarding each one according to his ways and according to the fruit of his deeds. You have shown signs and wonders in the land of Egypt. And to this day in Israel and among all mankind and have made a name for yourself and as as at this day, you brought your people Israel out of the land of Egypt with signs and wonders, with a strong hand and outstretched arm and with great terror. And you gave them this land which you swore to their fathers to give them, a land flowing with milk and honey. And they entered and took possession of it, but they did not obey your voice or walk in your law. They did, not, they did nothing of all you commanded them to do. Therefore, you have made all this disaster come upon them. Behold, the siege mounds have come up to the city to take it. And because of sword and famine and pestilence, the city is given into the hands of the Chaldeans who are fighting against it. What you spoke has come to pass. And behold, you see it. Yet you, O Lord God, have said to me, buy the field for money and get witnesses though the city is given into the hand of the Chaldeans. It is in all of this that Jeremiah looks at the sweep of Israel's history, at least up to that point, and he says, nothing is too hard for you. Now, I don't think Jeremiah is referring to God's power or his ability. In other words, I don't think what Jeremiah is ultimately saying is, God, you are powerful enough to do anything you want. I don't think that's the statement, the testimony that Jeremiah is making. Instead, what I think Jeremiah is referring to is he's saying, God, you are so mysterious in your ways. Nothing 
is outside the boundary of what you're capable of doing, God. Nothing is too hard for you. If I could paraphrase Jeremiah's prayer, I think it basically goes something like this. You told us that you would repay the guilt of fathers to their children's generation, and yet at the same time, you hold everybody accountable to their own sin. How do you reconcile that? And then he says, when we were slaves in Egypt, when all hope was lost, and it felt like you abandoned us, out of nowhere you showed up, and you delivered us. And you brought us into this promised land, this amazing land, flowing with milk and honey. But then when we turned our backs on you, you warned us. If we don't repent, that judgment was coming, that you would kick us off the very land that you had given us. And Jeremiah is basically saying, I've been one of your messengers to deliver this message of warning, but now that judgment has finally come and the enemy is at our gates, I can hardly believe what I'm witnessing here. How can you let your holy city fall? How can you let the people who bear your name be disgraced and taken as prisoners to a foreign land to a bunch of pagans who don't even acknowledge you? You see, for the Israelites, the land was everything. Going all the way back to Abraham, the promise of the people of Israel was connected to occupying this land that he promised to their forefather Abraham. And so no matter how bad things got, the Jews could never imagine that God would ever take that radical step of kicking them off their land. But now that day has come, and Jeremiah can't believe it. And he says, God, how can you do this? How can you do this? Isn't it even for your own namesake? that you would do something else than this. Now that terrifying judgment has finally come and Jerusalem is about to fall, Jeremiah adds one last thing to his prayer. In the midst of what seems like the most hopeless situation, when everything is lost, then you tell me to buy this farm that is utterly worthless as a sign of hope for better days that are yet to come. That the best days of Israel are not behind us. They lie ahead of us. And Jeremiah is looking at everything, just this crazy journey he's been on. And he says, nothing is too hard for you, God. I don't don't understand any of this. You surprise me over and over again. I think that I finally figured you out. And yet, then you tell me to buy this farm from my cousin that is absolutely worthless. We don't have time to look at all of God's response, but it's found in verses 26 to 44, and I would invite you to take a look at it yourself later this week. But in essence, God affirms everything that Jeremiah says, recounting Israel's history in his own words, and he says to Jeremiah, is anything too difficult for me? Is anything too difficult for me? I want to say this. I think whether we realize it or not, all of us try to domesticate God. Don't we do that? We try to reduce God to someone that we can figure out, who lives up to our expectations that we can accept. In other words, we sanitize the image of God, ignoring all of the parts that trouble us or that we don't understand. So that in the end, we are left with like a puppy dog God, you know? A God that we can feel like we can hold and say, I understand this God. But the truth is, the God of the Bible, sometimes he worries me a little. 
I don't really get what he's about. And it, truth be told, makes me a little nervous. And I think what Jeremiah is confessing here is, you are not a domesticated God. You are a God that is beyond my wildest imaginations of what I would imagine a God to do. And you break that mold and you do something totally unexpected in our lives. I think we do this all the time. We domesticate God by the way we read our Bible, right? Isaiah chapter 34 says this, Say to those with fearful hearts, Be strong. Do not fear. Your God will come. He will come to save you. That's a beautiful promise from God that ought to comfort and give hope to anyone struggling with their fears. And I think the truth is a lot of you know this verse because somebody wrote a gospel song on it. And unlike Pastor Peter, I'm not going to try to sing it for you guys because that's just unblessing because I cannot sing. But many of you know that gospel song, right? Um, But there's an ellipsis in there. The dot, dot, dot. Because the complete unedited verse looks like this. Say to those with fearful hearts, be strong, do not fear. Your God will come. He will come with vengeance, with divine retribution. He will come to save you. (laughs) It doesn't quite have the same effect anymore, does it? He will come with vengeance. (laughs) There's no gospel songs that ever sing like that. It's interesting that the songwriter left out these words, isn't it? Because I think the truth is he or she, I don't know who wrote it, didn't know what to do with that part of it. So he just cut it out, edited it. Now here's the thing is, before I get too self-righteous about this, I have to be the first to admit that I recognize I am strongly tempted to do this in my own sermons. Sometimes I want to use a passage in the Bible that I think supports an argument that I want to make. And then when I actually look up that verse in the Bible, that passage, there's some verses that are troubling to me. (laughs) And it doesn't quite fit what I'm trying to say about God's love or something like that. And so it's very easy to not include those verses in what I show in my sermon slide. Here's what I'm saying. If you have never struggled with God, I don't know if you've encountered the God of the Bible. Because when you look at the pages of Scripture, everyone that has come face to face with the living God struggled with Him. I don't understand this. I don't understand your ways. I don't know what you're trying to do, God. What are you doing? Jeremiah was repeatedly surprised by the God that he encountered and often struggled to understand the mystery of his ways. But in the struggle that is recorded through this long book of Jeremiah, I would argue that we definitely see spiritual growth in the prophet. I see it here in chapter 32 when he is told to take all of his hard-earned money and throw it in a wasted real estate investment. And instead of shaking his fist and screaming at God, he ponders in wonderment and prayer, going, what are you doing here, God? Is anything too hard for you? Compare that to the younger Jeremiah in chapter 20, verse 7, 
Oh, Lord, you have deceived me. <laughs> and I was deceived. You are stronger than I, and you have prevailed. I have become a laughingstock all the day. Everyone mocks me. He said, you lied to me, God. You a liar. You are a liar, God. You lied to me. You know? That's what he's basically saying. And he says, you bullied me. You overpowered me. And so I had no choice. It's like that Taylor Swift song. Look what you made me do, right? So what he's basically saying is, look, I listened to you. I followed you. And this is what happened to me, right? That was for the youth group, okay? So, all right. <laughs> But what is happening here is that hope and faith are slowly arising in the heart of Jeremiah as he realizes even in the harshness of God's discipline, there is this amazing, consistent expression of his love and commitment toward us. Eugene Peterson says this, So at the moment that judgment is at hand, Jeremiah speaks the word that evokes hope. There is more here than Babylonians at the gate. There is God in your midst. Judgment is here. But don't despair. It is God's judgment. Face it. Accept the suffering. Experience the chastening action. God is not against you. He is for you. God has not rejected you. He is working with you. Judgment is not the last word. It is never the last word. Judgment is necessary because of centuries of hard-heartedness. Its proper work is to open our hearts to the reality beyond ourselves to crack the carapace of self-sufficiency so that we can experience the inrushing grace of the healing, merciful, forgiving God. In the previous chapter in Jeremiah 31, verse 2, he says this to the people in exile. This is what the Lord says. The people who survive the sword will find favor in the wilderness. I will come to give rest to Israel. Now, what God is saying to Jeremiah as his prophet that day is, all of these messages of hope that you've been preaching these days, do you believe them, Jeremiah? Do you yourself believe them? Because what God asked of his prophet is, then put it on display publicly, put your money where your mouth is, and take your own silver and buy this land as a sign that you believe in the hope that is coming to my people. And so I want to close with this thought. If our hope is real, it will be demonstrated by the daily choices that we make in our life. In other words, hope in the, as it's displayed in the Bible is never just an abstract theoretical concept. It is always demonstrated in a life filled with choices that we make on a daily basis. In other words, what I'm saying is this. You and I as followers of Jesus, every day God invites us to purchase a farm in Anathoth in a hundred different ways. To say, where is your hope? Where do you believe all of history is headed? And if you really believe it lies with me, then live like it. Put your money where your mouth is. If this is what you really believe to be our future. Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 verse 19 says, If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. I really wonder if this would be true of most of our lives. It's, what Paul is basically saying is this. If there is no Jesus and if he didn't die on a cross and if he didn't rise from the dead, I feel like the biggest fool. I have lived the most wasted life of mankind. 
I want you to picture what your life could look like if it was really embodied by this hope in Jesus. Because I think this, when you look at the Christian life, the life following God, the truth is, to the outsider, it's a ridiculous life. I I think that day when Jeremiah was buying that piece of land, and he had all these witnesses, and was looking so excited, going, I got the deal of the century. I think the truth is, everyone went home, and that was the dinner talk that night, going, you wouldn't believe what that crazy guy was doing again. And I think he was the laughing stock of Israel. <laughs> Let's sell him our farm. You know? probably, he was probably given 100 real estate offers the next day. Because Jeremiah is buying up land here in a city that's about to fall. But here's the thing. If God is real, and if his promises are real, then the most practical life you could live is to live the Christian life. Because that's the reality. All of those wasted hours in prayer, all of that wasted time reading your Bible, all these, think about what you could be doing every Sunday morning if you didn't have to come here. (laughs) I don't know if that's, I hope that's not what you're thinking about every time you come here. But imagine having every Saturday free. (laughs) I say every Sunday free. But if God is real and his kingdom is real and our destiny is real, then the most practical thing you could do is live the Christian life and invest everything for this truth that he proclaims. I want to close with these words and we'll pray. Habakkuk chapter 4, verse 17 to 19 says this. Though the fig tree does not bud and there are no grapes on the vines, though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, though there is no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Savior. The sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He enables me to tread on the heights. Let's pray. I'm going to say as we close out our service and get into a time of response through singing and prayer that the Christian life is a life of hope. But it's also a life of hope that is embodied by a life of faith, meaning that the hope we have is not something tangible that we can see with our eyes or maybe even lay hold of this side of heaven. In fact, Jeremiah knew that he would never reap the fruit of that land purchase. And that's why he was so adamant that that deed was put into a pottery vessel and stored away for the ages because he probably knew that it would be his distant relatives 70 years later who would be able to come back and take ownership of that property. And so he said, seal it away and tuck it away. And I think that's a very beautiful picture of the Christian life. Many of the things that God is going to ask us to invest our money, our time, our resources on, we may never see the fruit of that hard effort, that investment, this side of heaven. But if heaven is real, if God is real, if his promises are real, then we don't do this out of some sacrificial (laughs) martyrdom posture when we give generously to the church and witness and out of that get mocked at work and are courageous enough to share our faith with others. This is, not the, this is not the heroic life. It's the practical life. Because I believe that I'm just sowing seeds for a kingdom that is yet to come. 
one day, I believe God is going to be true to His word. And what awaits me is a reward of righteousness that I get to share with my Savior for the rest of my life. And I just want to ask you that as I close out today, where are you putting your investment? Where is your hope? Because the sad thing is, I think for a lot of us as Christians, we don't live very differently than the people in this world. We spend our money, we spend our time, just like the people in this world do. But are we really a people of hope? It says, all of my hope is in the kingdom of God and the things of heaven and the things of God. And I pray that we as a church, as ICC, would be a people of God that would live in the reality of that hope. Buy that farm, even if everybody laughs at you. Because that's the word of the Lord.